Welcome to Series 2 of Leading Between the Lines, a podcast from Alternique Inspired Growth with me, Peter Thorpe, as your host. In the coming months, I'll be talking to the people development heads from some of the UK's newest, fastest growing companies and finding out how they go about recruiting, developing and retaining top talent for their business. One thing's for sure, it's very different to even a year ago. My guest today, the first in our new series, by his own admission, stumbled into people development via an internship at Bosch, a massive international company. It was this experience that led him to want to work with smaller emerging businesses. So here he is now as people and talent lead at fast-growing business Duro. A very warm welcome to Thomas Forstner. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Can we just start um, by you explaining? to anyone listening, exactly what your company does, how they've got to where they are, and most importantly, how you've got to be working with them. Gotcha. So I'm working for Jiro, which in the shortest terms possible is a contract automation platform. Essentially, the idea there is to take the old ways of doing contracts with Microsoft Word and DocuSign and actually putting that into the 21st century uh, and doing this from a fully browser-enabled um, platform. Company has been around for uh, about five years, and I've been with them for the past year of that. Um, joined originally as talent acquisition lead, um, but working on the HR and the people side was always part of that bargain. Um, so at the moment, I'm essentially heading up um, both people and talent across the entire um, company after as you said, stumbling into it um, kind of by by accident from like very large companies into a very small niche of B2B SaaS um, world, where I've been in for the past three years. So I'm interested in the phrase, uh, you stumbled into it. Um, I think le- leadership, learning and development, whatever you want to call it, it is a bit of an acquired taste. And there's a consideration in some small businesses in particular that it's a waste of money because you should just concentrate on the bottom line. Uh, I'd like to think you had a bit of a contra view on that as you're involved with developing people. But where, where do you stand with that? It's interesting because I've actually found there to be quite a mindset shift, especially with leaders or founders in smaller businesses i think there's a there's a growing understanding that you will not be able to get a business off the ground if you don't have a couple of very basic things straight which is how do you retain all of these fantastic top performers that you want to hire into your business how do you um, make sure that you know they there's actually a diverse set of people in your business because they're strong correlations between um, having a diverse set of people that also feels a sense of belonging in the business and how that business then performs this typical hockey hockey stick curve of um, like revenue growth. Um, But I've been lucky that I've never had a massive problem with getting buy-in from leaders when it comes to, well, it's important to develop your um, people. It is important to have career tracks, career maps, it is important to um, essentially make sure that people aren't just retained, but they grow with the business. Although I'm, um, I, I know that not everybody's as lucky as me from the network that I've got with other people and talent leaders. There's some who 
essentially their function is seen as a supportive rather than a strategic function. So essentially hire us some people and don't worry about anything else. And that's also how I chose Jerome. Okay, well, we'll come back to the retain bit, if we may, um, because uh, before that comes the how do you find and recruit top quality people? Because that doesn't end by accident either. Mm. Um, definitely. And especially if you're a tiny business with almost no um, name recognition, you essentially have, you know, you have none of the bonuses of a more established company, like, you know, established career growth, you probably can't offer the same salary um, that those companies can offer. So you essentially have this uh, double whammy, uh, so to speak, of trying to get really fantastic people into the business that are going to make an outsized impact on your growth, because one among 30 is completely different scenario to one amongst 300. And they influence the culture as well. Um, but in order to like actually be able to attract these top talents, uh, which kind of like dehumanizes them a little bit. And, and we generally about making contracts more human, making our org more human. But we had this issue when I started. We had a relatively mature business, but very basic talent processes, interview processes. There wasn't really such a thing. Um, people development all kind of happened ad hoc. People felt the warmth, but there wasn't really anything in place. And the three things that I started with is like, number one, you don't just start like hiring people when somebody says we need somebody. One of the biggest like pains I've seen is to like overhire. So you got to make sure you have a very good discovery process of why do we need somebody? What problem do they solve? What does this mean in terms of the things that they actually have to do? How do we test for this in an interview process and working like cascading down from there? Number two, solid candidate experience because lots of companies have a like super good structure, but lots of companies also treat candidates like one among many. By having a structure that I think our, our Glassdoor reviews tell that story better than I could. But if you have a process that genuinely gives people information, treats people with respect, gives people feedback, that way you then set yourself apart from the competition. And then number three, uh, just making sure that all this structure and the solidity that you have actually shows in your employer brand, whatever that means, because for a lot of people, employer brand is a very blurry subject, but making sure that you know, your careers pages actually give people information about the things that they want to know, making sure that your job descriptions are actually balanced and don't just speak about like superstars or rock stars, which are typically very male um, terms and they don't really attract people who aren't white European men. So these were the three areas that I tackled first. Okay. Uh, one of those that you said was about testing in the interview process to make sure you've got the right people for the right jobs. Um, so for all the cultural fit, the fluffy stuff, the fluffy words, whatever you could call it, then testing in the interview process to me is about being objective and making sure that there's cast iron evidence that who you're bringing into your organisation has actually got the talent to do the job and the potential to grow. Otherwise, you're bringing in a dud before you start. So talk to me about any particular role and how you would objectively test to make sure that that person was up to it. Sure. Um, so there's actually a fantastic 
other podcast that I've um, listened to recently called Work Life with Adam Grant. Um, relatively well known, but they uh, have an episode where they talk about specifically testing um, for these more fluffy concepts. Um, it's really interesting. Um, but really what I hammer into my hiring managers is that every hiring decision just boils down to three basic questions that you want to be able to confidently answer with yes after any interview process. Can this person do the job? Does this person want to do the job? And do we want this person to do the job? And you operationalize these three things in skills. Can they do it? Motivation. Do they want to do it? And then this fluffy concept of like value fit or culture fit, which is like, do we want them to do the job? Now, where most people get this wrong is that they think, and I think this is within the term fit, is that this person has to think the same way that we do or come from the same background than we are. And in the extreme, that's, you know, there's a company that I know that used to um, hire only people who play lacrosse because all of their top performers were lacrosse players. Absolutely irrelevant for somebody's ability to do the job. But the way that we tackle it is that, um, let, let's take the example of account executive, um, of which we hired a relatively like senior individual contributor recently. The way that we approach this is by essentially building a map, which is, why are we hiring this person at all? What's the core problem that they're solving? Cool. Once we have that, we boil that down to a list of competencies that we're looking for. For example, um, ability to prospect because it was a 360 sales role, creativity in order to get a deal closed because you don't have a perfect like playbook to work off of. Now, where culture fit fits into these is not that you are testing it as a separate thing. We also talk about culture add or value add in an interview process, but really with every skill that you're testing, you're also testing how they go about that and that is your um, that is your values. So for example, when we're talking about creativity, that for us is a reflection of our core value of trust and deliver. We have a very specific way of how we define this value and what behavior somebody could talk about in the interview process that actually shows, okay, cool, like the way that they go about using creativity is A, good, and B, it aligns with our values. So really we're testing for value add, we like to say, not value fit. It's like, what do they bring to the business that we don't have right now throughout the process? And then at the very end, we then test it again explicitly with two members of our sales team where we have relatively general um, value-related questions. For example, talk, of, talk to us about a time when um, you were in disagreement with a coworker or a manager, give us a situation, how would you do it, right? Typical behavioral or situational questions. Um, and there's essentially a key of like what we are looking for in a good um, answer and thus having essentially a lot of things. So um, we got there at the end where I was hoping we'd get to the use of situational interviewing and mm. for actual examples and drilling down to get evidence of how people have performed. Because right at the beginning of that, you said, that uh, for an account executive, you're looking at the ability to prospect. So in a room with that person, how on earth are you going to know whether they've got the ability to prospect and whether they're telling the truth or whether they're not? Hmm, very good question. So you can't do it through, um, through questions alone. No question about this. People can um, lie, even with uh, behavioral or situational questions. And it might not be that people are actively trying to deceive you. People, they like amp up their, their background a little bit. And there's a whole separate skill of like being good at being interviewed. I've found that 
especially um, people that I interview from America without like generalizing too much, but um, they are typically relatively good at being interviewed. Um, and it's very difficult sometimes to separate the two from uh, one another. So even if you ask lots of, you know, talk to me about a time when type of questions or the behavioral ones, even if you have exactly what a good star answer looks like, somebody can still be very well prepared and, you know, make something up in the most extreme cases, which is why you need a combination of questions and work tasks and people. So one thing that we have as part of our interview process is um, the person comes to us with, with comes to us with a presentation, relatively short, six slides. We don't want a, we don't want a novel um, that essentially says, okay, talk to us about you know if you were the um, sales director at Juro, how would you structure the top, middle, and bottom of the of the sales funnel at Juro in order to set it up for scale, in order to de-risk deals, um, and is that like Go for it. This isn't specifically prospecting. This is more um, around like creativity. In this case, prospecting, we don't actually test through a task in this case, but a lot of the other ones fall under this, um, this task. And then after 30 minutes, we ask them to present the same thing again after we've given them feedback through which we, for example, test um, their willingness to learn, which is another one of our competencies, which then goes back to our value of love and details. So can't test everything from all angles, absolutely agree, but you can get to a lesser degree of false positive and false negatives by mix and matching your people and your methods. So it sounds like you're running your own internal type of assessment center to, to some degree in terms of mixing and matching your, your methods. Pretty much, yes. Assessment center, I typically see that as like you've got lots of candidates at the same time, which we don't. We test like every candidate once a time, but we have um, a very laid out process that we want people to move through. And we know with every question, every single task that we ask them to do and every single person that they meet, every one of these people knows exactly what their role is in the business and how it fits into the wider whole. Um, our CEO and co-founder, Richard, he is part of that interview process and his specific role is to measure motivation um, again at the end of the interview process. So I asked for at the beginning, right? Does this person want to do the job? What's their idea? He measures it at the, um, at the end. But that is relatively labor intensive before you ever put the role out. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're using a consistent process for each candidate, which I guess you are, and you're absolutely right, with an assessment centre, normally you might have half a dozen people at, at one go, and you'd score them consistently against exactly the same tests, opportunities, whatever you want to call that. When you are interviewing one person at a time, are you scoring them numerically against the role? So then when you interview someone that afternoon you also score them numerically against the role because otherwise how can you compare candidates yeah um on the topic of assessment centers it's um we we have done them in the past as well um for especially more entry-level roles like business development reps for those it's you know sometimes useful to have like several people at the same time see how they interact with each other Totally cool. Reason why we haven't is because when I joined, we were 15 people, doubled this to like more than 30 in less than a year. But 
most of these are senior, um, very unique roles. So they need like a very bespoke um, approach and assessment centers aren't very human, harking back to our core values. And they also don't give us the information that we want. Now to your point about um, testing them numerically, to an extent, so it's not as sophisticated as I know Amazon, for example, does it like, you know, only when somebody reaches like a 3.2 at least uh, scoring across like various things that you want, only then are you going to put them forward. We don't do that for two reasons. Number one, because I don't think it's necessary at our size in the business. And there is a certain degree of intuition. I like to say, you know, don't rely on your intuition, test your intuition. There's studies that show that the best approach isn't one that relies purely on numbers or purely on intuition, but both. You use a very structured approach in order to uh, find out things. But then at the end, there is this kind of little dash of, well, you know, do I think this person is going to make um, the change? So we do have a sort of numerical system in our applicant tracking system that we use. Yes, every applicant tracking system comes with like a what zero to four or like thumbs up thumbs down and we do have that however we don't have a fixed system of you know it's like only if they get like a thumbs up from everybody um they're gonna make it in fact we have quite a few people who tend to get a thumbs up from everybody but still don't make it because there's much more nuance nuance than i believe a numerical system could ever account for at least at our stage so um how could you get a thumbs up from everybody and still not make it then? <laughs> um, one reason is very basic, which is that um, applicant tracking systems are oftentimes not so refined. So for example, the one that we're using essentially has like four levels, double thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs up, double thumbs up. Sometimes people, they want to kind of like, they're feeling neutral, but they're like, you know, like based on this, like I'm getting like, sometimes there's like, there's almost like three sub-stages, like very soft thumbs up, soft thumbs up, thumbs up, and perhaps like a fourth one, like strong thumbs up. That's why what we opt for rather, and, and that's where we get most of the information is feedback huddles um, after an interview stage. So everybody that has met the person comes together. We're being very careful that number one, um, I tell them like, please don't talk with each other before having submitted your feedback. You do not want to bias each other's um, opinion. Um, and then secondly, that huddle goes back to these three core questions. Like, can we confidently answer these three questions? Do they want to do the job? Can they, and, and do we want them to? Can we consider, confidently answer them with yes, based on what you have said? And out of those, that's where you get most of the like qualitative nuance based on the quantitative thing where it turns out actually everybody's sort of, um, yes, is a, is a lukewarm one. Can we afford lukewarm uh, in this case? For example, like, can we, train the person like is, is this the kind of role where we can like we know what our concerns are with this person which is great because then we know you know what we have to make sure that you know they're set up for success for in the onboarding or is this the role where we need them to really hit the ground running because it's the very first one and if the uh, decision is like this is really the very first role and they will not have as much support as we think we need to give them then all thumbs up can turn into a no Okay. Uh, just before we leave recruitment, uh, what are you missing in your system at the moment? So this time next year, what would you like to be doing better in terms of your onboarding program? If we're thinking onboarding, so when I started 
there was a lot of goodwill, I would say, but onboarding didn't set people up for success. I tend to make a distinction between people being successful and being happy. People can be super happy, but they're still not set up for success. And this goes for like the recruitment process as well as the onboarding process. Um, we've gotten quite a long way. We've kind of like essentially taken down our entire onboarding program and like revamped it with these two principles in mind, being successful and like being delightful or happy. But the two things that I would like to have in place next year that, that we don't have right now is number one, it's, it's fantastic remote. Um, I think we've got like something relatively good uh, in place, even if people like never see us. However, um, it shows in a parallel survey that we do, which is an engagement survey, that people's uh, that there's a significant difference between how sort of loyal or engaged people are with regards to Juro as a business when they onboard remote versus when they did it in person. And I don't think that that means that everybody needs to be in person. However, um, once sort of the pandemic allows, I want us to have put something in place that gets this difference equalized so that everybody has the same great experience with Juro um, regardless of whether they onboard in Russia or whether they onboard in our UK hub. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, let me pick up on your success versus happy. Uh, there are two schools of thought. The first is that people who feel good about themselves perform better. And the second is that people who perform better feel good about themselves. Which one do you sign up to? I'm going to take the, um, the, the, the easy way out. And I would say I think the two aren't mutually exclusive. There's, uh, there's a correlation. I don't think one causes the other. I would say they they influence each other. Go on then. Well, I won't let you off the hook on that one, will I? So you can keep talking on that. <laughs> um, so, so here's the thing. People like you, what's the, what's the business relevant thing that you actually want here? You want people to do a good job for you as long as possible. And then, you know, ideally feel good, not miserable doing that job, which means that regardless of which one causes the other, um, which is a discussion that you know you can have until whenever and maybe we get to some sort of answer. I don't know the answer. I might have an opinion, but I personally care more about how to make sure that all of these are on you know a nine out of 10. So I think that happy people perform really well. However, I also think that if you know there's a slump in like sales team like progress because of things that aren't related to people's well-being their anxiety will probably increase because they have targets that they're not hitting which means that you want to make sure that you've got processes in place that enable managers to enable their team to make sure that they hit their targets and you want to make sure that you've got an environment set up where everybody feels a sense of belonging where everybody um, actually has flexibility to do meaningful work and isn't bogged down by lots of meetings, um, et cetera. And thus, um, their retention is probably um, going to go up. Or if it, you know, if, if somebody leaves at some point, they will still remain advocates for the business. I'd well, probably still check it out of your answer there. No, that, no that's okay. Because to take that on to the next stage, when you get people who are feeling good about themselves, um, also known as high self-esteem, probably, so you've got high self-esteem people performing well. And if we link that to retention, you'll only keep those because they're effectively going to be top performers. 
high self-esteem, good performance equals you're on the way to really having somebody special. And if we link that to retention, you're only going to retain them if you put an environment and structure in place that's going to work for them. It's no good at working for you. It's got to work for them. So how important is it for you at Juro in a very new business, not too many people, so I guess you're not carrying passengers, to keep your top performers? And how do you go about that? Yeah. So totally agree with you that, um, you know, if we try and operationalize, you know, what people feeling good about themselves actually means. I mean, there's different ways of doing this. Most people, they track engagement. Some people, they track self-esteem as part of it or as a several a separate thing. Some people track well-being, which is often seen as a separate uh, entity. And some people, they track um, like work-life balance or generally balanced. People can be highly engaged, but they can still burn out. Uh, these two aren't uh, relative to each other. Now, when it comes to us having actually defined, okay, cool, um, there's like, we want to keep obviously like everybody um, happy in the business because there's a reason that we hired them. But after identifying your top performers and there's a whole separate like discussion on how you get there, how do you actually make sure that these people stick with us? There's a problem that I have encountered with quite a few hiring managers, which is that, you know, we want the best, we want the brightest, whatever. It's like, well, lucky you, so does everybody else in the business. And we can only make sure that we keep these people if we actually offer them something that makes them decide every single day, yes, I'm going to stick with this business and I'm not going to look for everybody for, for somewhere else. Because that is a decision, like kid yourself, not that they are making every day. And the second that, you, that they waver on that answer, you have already almost lost them. So proactively, you've got to make sure that you have basically three things in place. Number one, really thought out career map. These people, especially the high performers, they're already thinking about the next step. They're not, you know, they're, they're usually not content with uh, like, I'm going to keep doing my job for like three years or whatever they want to see. What's next out there for me? And you got to make sure that you have an answer for them, ideally before they ask. Number two, you got to get out of their way where you really like shouldn't be. So High performers typically correlate with needing relatively little oversight and bringing in a lot proactively into the business. So you got to make sure that all of your processes are set up around enabling them to do deep work, to borrow um, a term that's like swirling around a lot. Uh, and that's something that we're doing by, you know, actively reducing the amount of meetings, making sure that um, people's, you know, it's like digital workspaces are decluttered, uh, et cetera. And then number three, and this is something that people often focus first about, first on, um, but I think is more of a supporting thing, which is the benefits, right? The, the perks um, that you have um, within your company um, that, you know, I think is never a reason why people join. I think it is never a reason why people leave but it you know, supports um, things. And benefits are really, again, just an extension of trying to support people's well-being. When you put out a mental health benefit, that is literally just the end of a long rope of things that you're doing to increase or like keep high the well-being of people. So most people have a very individual view of what success means to them. Mm -hmm. uh, my experience is that the smartest companies sit down with their new employees and talk to them about where they want to be in a year's time. And even at this point, where do you want to be in five years' time? And they look at that career path. As you say, they've already thought over their career path, the really smart 
smart guys and girls that you're recruiting. But then that to me says that your line management structure becomes hugely important because if your line managers are not decent coaches, and I don't mean in terms of qualification, I mean in terms of talking and having the conversation, it all rests with your managers to make or break the quality of people you bring. So you can bring in as many top people as you want, Thomas, but if you pass them on then to a poor quality line manager, anyone who's any good won't hack it. They'll be gone in a year. What do you think? I couldn't agree more. Um, I tend to approach people or what is traditionally called HR, like a product function. So essentially the, the can like the candidate or employee experience is the product that I'm trying to put out. If I have to do all the work myself, um, I'm probably not um, doing a good function, which means that I typically work by proxy. Like you say, you know, if I want to make sure that people are growing, I can't do this as an HR department, um, especially, you know, like right now at 30 people, it might work, but not at 300. I can't uh, look at every, every um, single person, which is why, as you say, like a lot of work goes into making sure that managers are enabled to do, uh, to, to enable the rest of their team. Uh, and we're doing this in a couple of ways. One you've already touched upon, which is once people join um, in the business, we're actually um, doing two conversations. So number one is typically a relatively like light discovery session where we talk about why did you get in this, you know, into this like profession in the first place? What has kept you in it? What has kept you in your in your past job? If you didn't do this job, what else would you do? Um, things that we might have touched upon in an interview process, but an interview process is just a test, right? It's like a sample that you do of somebody's work. You can never capture the whole thing. But here's our chance to really get into two things. Number one, what motivates this person every day? What is their personal mission? What is their personal vision? And number two, very importantly, what are their deal breakers? What are the things that if you cross that line, they will probably leave your business? And I think it's, it's, a, it's a very basic thing, but it's one that so many managers aren't aware of. If I ask them, like, well, what's what's the killer? What's the killer for you for all of your direct reports that makes them want to leave? And if they all know this from the start, relatively naturally, they will start like avoiding um, to, to put the, the the killers in there and making sure that they frame various projects and tasks around their personal motivators. And then I actually just came directly from a session, which is sort of the follow up, which is a career development session, basically. We have a career map um, that everybody at Juro is roughly placed in. They can go off the map. There is a possibility to, you know, go off the like general, like individual contributor track onto like a role that, you know, maybe nobody has thought of before, discussion with the business, but simply having the clarity for everybody where they are and where they can go next and making sure that managers can communicate this well. And me being there every step of the way with them to support them if they need help that is really what for us has led to a quite consistent level of um, how managers are rated by employees, which we also um, track as one of our success metrics. So in big companies, it's a common beef that uh, HR say, we recruit all these great people, we give them over to you in sales, and then within a year, they've gone. How many managers have you got at the moment in your company? Only, only small, but growing quickly. Relatively small number, yes. So right now I've got uh, seven or eight and rapidly growing management layer. 
far cry from you know it's like several thousand people companies some people who, who might be listening might be hr managers but, but this is where it all starts though isn't it this is where it all starts and you either keep your good people when you're small and you and you explode or you lose your good people and in two years you won't be a fast growing company anymore you'll be a fastly diminishing company so it really does matter so how many of those seven or eight managers have been recruited as managers and how many of them have been point, appointed from within having joined as something else yeah um all but one have been hired as managers that is not to say that people who are individual contributors right now could obviously become managers the main mistake that people often make is that they say you're doing a great job as this one person let's give you a couple of people under you ignoring that that's a whole separate skill set that you need to train up and that is part of our um kind of career framework, which is if you actually want to, you know, become from, you know, like account executive to a sales manager, you know, that's fantastic. Um, you know, it's like, this is when we are probably needing this in the business. Um, here's all the things that we're going to train up in you um, now to like groom you into this role to make sure you succeed. So where are you on your journey of developing your managers into being the type of managers that you really want them to be? Because that's a journey in itself, isn't it? It is. Um, and for us, we, we see this the, um, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, the journey from lead to leader. So we have a relatively clear idea of what we think makes a great leader. A great leader creates energy, provides clarity, and generates results. If a leader does those three things, I would we would classify them as you know, being as close to sort of a transformational leader as you want them to be. Right now, all of our managers are probably somewhere in the middle of that journey. And I've been like lucky that, you know, I've recruited uh, quite a couple of them into the business over the past year, which means that I've got my claws in them um, already from the start. Um, they respect me, they, they trust me. And I would also say for anybody who's listening to this, who is in an HR function that's larger, if your problem is we give you all these great people and you don't do anything with them, what are your touch points with managers outside of this? You know, we've got monthly manager check-ins where we really just listen to them, to, to their problems that they're having. Some, sometimes people need to vent. Um, and then we come with like a couple of things that we would suggest, little tweaks, um, very easy to implement. They come back and they're like, this was good, this didn't work, but overall they're like, okay, you know, these people give me advice, so you know, what should I do? And that's how we like gradually, um, by helping them, rather than putting stuff on them, we make them, we essentially form them, ooh, I, I hope they don't hear this, but like we form them in our image, in a, in a sense. We create a good baseline of what makes a great manager, and then we develop them with each of their individual um, career tracks, specific action points in order to become like from a director into a VP, here's what you need. To turn from a manager into a head of, here's what you need. Let's build this together. And, and you say you hope they're not listening, but actually I really hope they are listening because there's some great stuff being spoken here about the people in your company and, and your managers are seven or eight of them. Um, and you say that most of them are in the middle. Well, most of us are, are always in the middle of where we are because there's loads of room for all of us to develop. So there's nothing in there other than that's just how it, how it is. Um, but in general terms, how would you like to see your managers be performing in a year's time? It's very general, this. Uh, doing what sort of stuff 
that they're not doing today? So right now, um, one thing that I would really love um, for there to be a general consensus in the of management layer on is to make sure that they all have a very clear idea of where to grow every single one of their people. Right now, there's no consistency in terms of, okay, does every one of your direct reports have a set of action points of where to go next? Has this conversation happened? Do you know what their killers are and their um, and, and their motivators? Most of them do, but not everybody. And this is a kind of a continuous work in progress. I would like there to be a time next year where I can ask them and they know like just like that, like this person's motivated by that. That person wants to like build a house and they're very money oriented. And like, here's the things that I'm, that I'm doing. Um, that's number one. Number two is a, and, and I don't have this myself, uh, mind you, like I'm, I'm still working on this, but like a really like strategic cascading mindset. A lot of um, like, we have a very good OKR system. There's, you know, it's like company level strategic directives and, that breaks down to very clear ideas of what like revenue targets somebody um, somebody has. However, the scientific almost approach of measuring success in every single function to a very high degree um, is still a bit of a like case by case. People and talent, I've got a like whole spreadsheet with like numbers and stuff that show like, are we in the green? Do I know whether that's the right thing to look at or not? Like it's an assumption. I, you know, I might I might improve that. Not everybody, every manager has that. And in fact, a lot of people they think they're data driven when they're really not. And I would like there to be a general consistent sense of what data driven actually means, because typically it means looking at a lot of numbers. And people they think it means something more fluffy, but it really doesn't. And now's the time to do it, isn't it? Because you're small enough to be able to do that and get everyone on board and have that consistency. And again, if you don't have that consistency going forward uh, and it starts to break away around the edges, then it becomes more of a problem and you perhaps won't be able to pull it back into, into the line that you want it to be in. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely. The, the um, thing that uh, I heard a couple of times, I think on, on a couple of... Um, diversity, inclusion, belonging, like panels or around tables that you can't retrofit for diversity in this case. Uh, and I say similarly, you can't retrofit for um, you know, performance or like ways of doing things. Rolling out like a, an, an OKR system or um, career map or progression framework, you know, this is, this is a bit painful <laughs> um, already now. I can't imagine how painful this is going to be if you're trying to do it at 5,000. Like you've got to this number and now is the first time your exec leadership team thinks about, um, oh, it's like we've only got like 15% women and they're all in junior positions, hire us some like female execs. And that's not how it works. That's putting the horse before the cart. And you're absolutely right. And this is why uh, the owners of your business are clearly really smart because they're putting some money on the table to get you in. Uh, and I don't know what your budget is, and I'm not going to ask you, but you need some money on the table to be able to sort this stuff out because it's going to have a massive impact on how your business grows. It does. Um, the, 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 the thing that attracted me to draw in the first place is the fact that Richard, our founder, and I really see, A, we see eye to eye on, on a number of things, but really when I came into the business, he essentially said, you know, you are here because I because you know stuff better than me. Like I want to learn from you. I'm not going to tell you how to do things, um, but I also want you to create the, the 
best, like most world-class people and talent functions um, for like our stage, like startup, that everybody's going to look at us and say, you know, we want to copy this. Um, and in fact, we want to make a couple of the things that we have right now public, our handbook, which we keep in like an internal Wikipedia style thing um, where we're putting that live um, soon. But, you know, th that's what, you know, keep that. That is what my motivator is if we're talking about this on a personal level. Um, and my personal killer would be the second that I'm seen as a support function or the second that somebody tries to micromanage me, um, I would probably look elsewhere. And luckily so far that hasn't happened because Richard is really living up to the, the fact that, you know, he trusts me to build a great function, but he will also push back if he um, thinks that my reasoning is off or if I haven't thought about, you know, the, the problem that we're trying to solve well enough. I've got one more um, question about the company and then let's spend a little time talking about you and where you might be going in the future. So my, my question about the company is, at uh, the moment, uh, your employee balance is roughly two-thirds men, one-third women. How does that fit with your uh, diversity and inclusion? Uh, not good enough. Uh, and there's no way around this. I mean, um, we haven't figured this out, uh, just like no company has. Here's what I'm working on at the minute. Um, and it's basically step by step. If we're talking about, you know, these general topics of like diversity, inclusion, belonging. Diversity is really like the, the top of the pie, right? Making sure that you have a team that roughly represents the um, like environment that they're in, like rough gender parity, um, like variety of people of different backgrounds, sexual orientation, age, like all the all the markers. Inclusion is active steps that you're taking in order to increase diversity. So, for example hiring processes making sure that you know you have um, you ask the same questions to every candidate ideally doing blind interviewing belonging is the cream of the crop because that's where um every single person regardless of who they are where they come from genuinely feel a sense of that they're part of one whole and right now with one third women things that we are doing is essentially just asking um people, which is easier if you're 30 people to say, well, you know, where do you currently not feel like you're belonging? And one very simple thing that came up was, you know, um, women's health. There's a lot of like a lot of um, people at, at Juro that felt that, you know, if they've got headaches or cramps, um, like once a month, they feel they can't take um, time off because, you know, it's like more regularly. So what we've done is essentially say, you know, um, as part of our trust basis sick policy, which is essentially a way of saying unlimited, um, very explicitly, like period complications totally count um, as part of this. Um, we kick out, uh, we separate out medical um, appointments on a, on a trust basis as well, because you know it's like this, like women's health is one thing, but you know more regular checkups for any kind of um, personal ailment or condition also counts as this and we're doing this step by step so for now you know we we essentially have an entire page around women's health and things that we're doing like keeping the um the office um stocked we have a special budget for like women's health um apps and, and tools but doing this for you know next people of faith with ramadan coming up what are we offering as a business to people who you know practice ramadan or people who you know generally like pray um, throughout the year or whatever, you know, we've got holidays for, for, for Easter, but, you know, 
some people don't get time off for for Eid um, at the end of Ramadan. And then going through this like for like LGBTQ, for neurodiversity, for ethnic um, background. If you're trying to tackle all of this at once, like I would fail immediately. But I'm trying to walk the walk by doing a couple of really like solid things for every single um, person. And only that way, I think when we shout about this, once we can actually be proud of what we've created here and showing that we're serious, that's where we think the amount of the, the ratio of women to men, for example, will get closer to parity. That on top of, you know, a lot of things that I'm doing separately in recruiting to make sure that I, you know, invite and source more um, diverse candidates to the pipeline. But this kind of goes back to this discussion of, you got to have an environment that actually keeps people in, not just attracts them to us. Well, that answers a great insight, Thomas, into your own value system. Uh, so I'm going to ask you about it. As a human being, what do you stand for? So I think this is where, the without without sounding too much like a, like a broken record, but this is where the, the, the values of my company actually align relatively well with my personal ones. Um, I'm a like I'm probably a, a relatively bad recruiter um, by by most standards um, because I stress a lot about candidates actually being um, respected, which is typically not a very good trait to have if you're like funneling through a lot of people and you've got like a lot of resumes to to, to look at. So I, um, I I really buy into this core value at Juro of being more human, even at the expense of sometimes being scalable. Because I think that you know, word will get around if you treat everybody with um, respect and feedback. For example, at the end of every um, interview process, if somebody has made it this far, I, on top of a personalized um, email, which everybody gets with personalized feedback, I offer a 30 minute call with me to say, you know, um, let, let's talk about, you know, how you can be set up for success in like the next interview. You didn't make it here, um, you might in the future, but you know, let's let's talk about this. And that takes some time out of my day. Could I optimize for more efficiency by kicking out those 30 minute calls like once a week or so? Sure. Do I want to? No. Um, and the second thing that I think is, is really close to how I choose to work is with always an eye on, on craftsmanship. So I, I lived in Japan for quite a while. And the idea of you know people owning their crafts for like 20 years plus, that humility is something that I try to incorporate in how I do things. Like the first question, Richard might like might tell you this, the first question when he told me I got the offer uh, for, uh, for for the team at Juro is, you know, it's very nice like that you're telling me all these nice things, but tell me now, like what could I have improved in this interview process? Like I'm super happy I'm accepting your offer. So I like kind of made him less anxious at that point, but tell me like what you wrote down as the concerns so that I can prepare and make sure that I don't make these mistakes going in again, the ones that I showed you in the interview process. Okay. Um, well, I'm not going to let you off that easily because I'm going to take you right out of the company environment now because your values, they won't be the same as Juro's. Mm. I can see why you work together because there are similarities and that's great. But let's take it right out into your own personal and social life. So let me rephrase the question. Why do your closest mates, why does your, your, your partner, if you have one, your mum and dad, why do they think that you're a really great guy? 
<laughs> um, so so you'd, you'd have to ask them, but what I would hope that they um, would say is that I call them out on, can I swear? Uh, you certainly can swear, yeah. Okay, uh, that I call them out on bullshit. Um, if, if people are, so my, um, my partner lives um, across the pond uh, at the moment in, uh, in Chicago, uh, is doing a, a PhD. Um, I actually finished his PhD um, recently, but you know he likes to stress uh, quite a bit about um, you know it's like I'm never going to find a job or you know it's like everything is going going bad. Like I'm very supportive, but I I would like to say that he respects me for you know not just like tapping him on the on the shoulder and saying like there 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 is a time for that, and you need to make sure that people are heard, but you know also essentially pushing back and say, okay, like, let's not just stick within all of your problems and let's not just ruminate, let's find a solution. Like, let's, um, like, once you're, once you're done with this, like, let's talk about how we can make it better. And I would like to think that people appreciate a sense of, I guess, optimism, even though I would probably not call myself a, a super optimistic person. However, I try to instill this in, in other people. Um, whether I'm successful or not, you'll, you'll, you'll have to ask them, but I always try to approach friendships, family partnership with a sense of mutual respect and dignity and, and somebody having a, di a viewpoint different to my own. And rather than me blaring out about my own opinions, I would rather just listen to them first and see what their, what their point is, um, before I like form my own opinion and then see if I can be of help. Go on, that's a couple. What else you got? Yeah. Um, let me think about this for a sec. Well, you're clearly very humble because uh, <laughs> you're finding it quite difficult to to express the good things about you. And you're you're 28, Thomas. So with the best will in the world, you're you're pretty young to be in the job that you're doing now. It's clearly going exceptionally well, and you've got a huge amount of talent. But that doesn't happen by accident. So your boss has obviously seen the raw material. What, what has he seen? But not from a working point of view. He's seen it in you, the person. So what did he see? What I think um, he's seen, or certainly what I like to, um, to, to, to do, is somebody who people come to to, to listen to. Um, so I, I think in a relatively short amount of time, I, I gain people's trust so much so that people come to him without um you know without being like asked by him to say like you know this person like really helped me out um here also not mincing words i, I think he respects the fact that i tell him no um quite a fair amount of time um which isn't the case um always and a sense of detail orientation so the fact that i genuinely try to do a good job with every project that i take on or like everything that i do so not just being um lukewarm and this extends beyond work i think into into life and like how i try to um, conduct it as well but you're right it's a very hard question for me to answer because i'm guessing yes humble i'd like to not boast about myself might might be my upbringing might be my nationality but i like to think that i think things through quite a bit um before i act on them which might be a negative trait as well um because you know not very spontaneous 
but I like to, you know, give it a shot. Final question. Where are you going to be in five years then? You tell me. Um, I would like to be um, perhaps um, back in Japan for um, for another year or two because I really enjoyed living there, perhaps working full remote for, uh, for a global company. That would be nice. Um, in terms of where I want to be as a... Um, as a as a leader, I mean, if I'm still in this um, profession, which I, I probably will be, um, I would like to be in a business um, that is perhaps a little bit more um, like more later stage at that point because I've done the like I'm, I'm doing the very early like startup journey for the third time now and you know i'm building myself a niche here but that also shows very specifically like what i don't know which is these you know couple of thousand people companies and how to make sure that you know they are um fantastic as well but who knows like um i might uh, switch tracks entirely and um follow my childhood dream to be a, a novelist uh, who knows and maybe i'm just gonna write a gonna write a book from uh, from from tokyo um, but in any case, I don't think long-term, like core talent, uh, like recruit, actually frontline recruiting is not going to be um, for me um, because the stress of this almost the sales job is um, not something that I want to do in the long run. Well, whatever you do, if you write a book, it's going to be interesting. And wherever you go and whatever you do, You've just demonstrated in the last 45, 50 minutes what a huge talent you are and what a great acquisition you are for Duro. So thank you very much for your time. Clearly, you're going to be hugely successful. Thomas Forstner, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. If you've enjoyed today's episode and are interested in seeing and listening to more of our content, please do follow us on our LinkedIn profile where you'll find more industry-related material and articles. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode and look forward to you joining us then.